Right, well, if you turn to that uh, passage from 1 Peter that we read together. Now, if you look around the room at the people here tonight, I wonder, what do you see? Do you see others, or do you see one another? There's a, a big difference, isn't there, between others and one another. When you think about others, well, you usually don't have much connection with them. There's no real relationship there. But one another, well, that speaks of a a practical, reciprocal relationship, doesn't it? The idea of one another is very much at the heart of the, the passage that we're going to be looking at this evening. Last week we looked at verse 7 of chapter 4 where Peter said the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And we saw that really started with a statement the end of all things is at hand and that statement leads to a resultant exhortation. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, therefore what? The end is at hand, therefore panic? No. The end is at hand, therefore eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die? No. The result of exhortation is, therefore, be self-contented, sorry, self-confident and sober-minded for the sake of of your prayers. Now we saw that what Peter meant by the end of all things being at hand, it's not doomsday Armageddon, uh, it's the the final culmination of, of all of God's glorious purposes. And in view of that, of first importance is for us to pray. And to pray aright, well we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So that that was Peter's first exhortation, resulting from the fact that the the culmination of all God's purposes uh, is going to come. Uh, The the first exhortation is uh, to be self-controlled and sober-minded in order that you can pray. Um, It's not just a case of being self-controlled and sober-minded. It's not a bad thing. But it's with a view to praying. But Peter's exhortations uh, don't stop there. But that was just the first one. Um, The exhortations arising from the fact that the end of all things is at hand began with prayer. But it didn't end there. So reading on in verses 8 to the first part of verse 10, we see that he said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So the first exhortation was to pray. And that's really to do with our ongoing relationship with God, isn't it? Your praying is it's talking to God. If you like, it's one anothering with God. That's the first uh, exhortation, and that's always of first importance. If that's not right, 
if your relationship with God's not right, then nothing else will be. You've got to be right with God in the first place. But having said that, he then goes on to give, uh, to exhort us to three things. And you notice what they all have in common. It is those words, one another. Peter exhorts us to keep loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. And serve one another. So having addressed our relationship with God, he's now moving on to our relationships with one another within the body of Christ. So you could say that because the end of all things is at hand, Peter exhorts us to one anothering. Now that's a made up word, uh, but it conveys the sense of what Peter uh, is saying here. Believers in Christ are to be characterised by one anothering. And we mustn't think that this uh, this idea of one anothering is just a bit of a hobby horse with Peter. Um, in actual fact, there are 58 one anothers in the New Testament addressed to believers. So it's not just any old one another. I mean, there'd, there'd be even more than 58 one anothers. But in 58 times, one another is referring to believers in Christ. Uh, Jesus says it several times. Many are found in in Paul's letters. There are plenty in John's letters. There are four in James. There are three in Hebrews, as well as the ones here in Peter. So it's a prominent theme in the New Testament. It's a consistent expectation within the body of Christ that we will be relating to one another. Now before we consider those three exhortations I think we must be sure that we don't miss the force of this phrase one another because we can be a bit blinkered sometimes and and read what we expect to see or, or what we perhaps even want to see rather than what's actually being said. I think it's very easy to make the mistake of reading these exhortations as keep loving others or show hospitality to others or serve others. In other words, we take it that we're simply being told what we should be doing for other people. And if we understand it that way, well, then we're we're viewing it as as one way traffic, aren't we? We're viewing it as what we do for others. But you see, although one anothering includes what we should do to do for others, there's more to it than that. The very term one another suggests two-way traffic, doesn't it? It's, it's to and froing. It's backward and forwarding. It's a, a relationship that works in both directions. It's a, it suggests a mutual reciprocal relationship. And that means that we must be prepared to receive from our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as being ready to give to them. And I dare say that most of us are probably pretty willing to do good to others. You know, we're not the sorts of people who are likely to say, well, I'm not going to help them. We're willing and ready to to do good to others, 
if we're, we'll help our brothers, if we can help our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, we will do so. And hopefully we, we do that with the right motives. Um, having said that, our motives need to be carefully checked, don't they? Um, we can very easily find ourselves doing good to others because we crave that sense of satisfaction that we get in doing it so that we can give ourselves that pat on the back and say, didn't I do well? We can feel a bit bit smug and a bit pleased with ourselves. So we've got to be careful not to uh, be doing good to others with, with wrong motives. Um, we, we might be doing it because it makes us look good in the eyes uh, of others. So there's a real danger but when we do good for others that pride can creep in. Uh, we, we need to guard our hearts uh, when we're doing good to others. But you see, we also need to ask ourselves if we are as ready to receive from others as we are to to give to others. Um, that natural British reserve and sense of self-sufficiency can so easily kick in, can't it? So that when someone else would help you, would offer to help you, well, the natural inclination is to say, no, thank you. We, we automatically decline. We perhaps even discourage others from, uh, from actually helping us. We tell ourselves that's the, that's the respectable thing to do, that that's the honourable thing to do. But really, it's nothing more than a, a hefty dose of pride that's rearing its ugly head. You know, deep down, we like to think that we're strong. We, we like to think uh, that we are self-sufficient. We don't need help from others. But the fact is that for one anothering to take place, and we've seen how prominent one anothering is, uh, in the New Testament, well, for that to take place, there has to be humility. There has to be someone on the receiving end as well as on the giving end. So we must be prepared to graciously receive as well as to graciously give. We must be as prepared to be the recipients as we are to be the givers. You know, all too often... Uh, we can recite that cliche, can't we? It's more blessed to give than receive. I think that's debatable. <laughs> There's blessing in both, isn't there? And I, I don't know how you compare the two. We're to do both. We're to be willing givers. And we're to be thankful recipients. Um, it's not more blessed to give than receive. So we mustn't uh, use that as, a, as an excuse or let that hold us back. You know, if, if saying it's more blessed to give than receive means that we're, we're willing to give but unwilling to receive, well, then we end up denying our brothers and sisters the blessing of giving to us. So let's uh, turn now to the exhortations that, that Peter gives. And the first one is to love one another. That exhortation is found there in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now that word love, 
very widely used in popular popular culture, isn't it? Um, the common usages of the word love range from the trivial and banal right through to being wonderfully profound. A whole spectrum of, uh, of shades of meaning behind the word love. You know, someone might say they love a particular TV programme or they, they love a pair of shoes or, or they love a certain type of food. And what they really mean is, I, I like it a lot. Well, peace is not exhorting us to like each other a lot. Perhaps a little, but not a lot. <laughs> but that's not the sort of sense uh, uh, at all that, uh, that, that, that Peter has here. Or think of how many pop songs mention love. Uh, in one way or another, but usually it's speaking of love as a, a feeling or emotion, um, often about rather gooey boy meets girl romantic love or or sentimental love. In Greek, there are actually well at least four words that can be translated as love, and they each have different shades of meaning. Um, eros which is the word from which we get erotic, well, that speaks of intimate sexual passion. Uh, there's, there's filler, which is a, a, dis, a dispassionate, sort of virtuous love that speaks of a affectionate regard or, or friendship. Uh, the storge, which is a, a common or natural empathy, uh, such as that felt by parents for their children uh, or, or maybe even such as a, a person has for their country, a person's love of their country uh, but the Greek word that Paul uses here is agape uh, which is the word that Jesus used in John thirteen thirty four when he said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So notice that uh, Jesus didn't merely command his people to love, but it's that one another again. Jesus saying that we're to love one another. And Peter would have heard Jesus give that new commandments, so I'm sure that that's what Peter had in mind when he gave this exhortation to keep loving one another. Now, what is this agape love? Well, notice that it's loving as Jesus has loved us. It's not primarily to do with liking. It's not primarily to do with natural attraction. It's not to do with feelings or emotions. It's a deliberate selfless, sacrificial love. Jesus went, to, went on to further clarify that command to love one another as I have loved you in, in John fifteen, twelve to 13, where he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How did Jesus love us? 
well, he loved us in all sorts of ways, but supremely, he did so by laying down his life for us on the cross. So we should be characterised by showing such costly love, uh, that sort of sacrificial love that Jesus has lavished on us. And from what Peter says here about loving one another, I think we can see the priority of loving one another, uh, the persistency, the passion and the productivity of loving one another. So firstly, that the priority of loving one another, we see that because Peter says, above all, keep loving one another. Having said that the end of all things is at hand, Peter had firstly insisted that the right response to that is to be uh, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And now he goes on to say, above all. So in saying that, we're not to think that he's saying that loving one another is even more important than prayer. You know, he's not saying that's more important than what I've just said about praying. Rather, what he's doing here is pointing out that love for one another is of first importance in the context of what he's going on to say in terms of one anothering. He's underlining the necessity of love for one another in what follows. You see, he's going to talk about hospitality. Uh, and serving one another well you can show hospitality or you can serve one another in a way that's half-hearted in a way that's grudging in a way that's merely going through the motions the fact that love is to be above all means that all that we do is to be motivated by love and is to be an expression of our love love for one another is to be (coughs) overarching so um, Paul also speaks of this priority of love if you look at 1 Corinthians 13 1 to 3 if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love I am nothing If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's very emphatic, isn't it? It's very, very striking. Whatever you do, no matter how impressive, no matter how commendable it seems to do, well, it actually counts for nothing unless it's accompanied by love. So if you show hospitality without loving one another, it counts for nothing. You might as well not bother. Uh, If you serve one another without loving one another, it counts for nothing. Love is, if you like, it's it's the vital ingredient. It's the indispensable component. You might have a a top-of-the-range Rolls-Royce. It's... uh, expensive it it looks fantastic everybody knows that it's an amazing piece of engineering but without a vital ingredient none of that counts for anything you see a Rolls Royce when all is said and done is a car and it's meant to be driven and without 
the vital ingredient of petrol, it's not going to go anywhere. So for all that it's impressive and swanky looking, it needs the same petrol that the banger down the road needs. And without that, it's a waste of space. It's just taking up space in the garage or taking up a spot on the roadside. But it's not being what it's meant to do. It's meant to be driven. It's, It's meant to perform and give a smooth, comfortable ride. So it needs that vital ingredient. And love is the vital ingredient in our Christian lives our our lives together and in our one anothering. So showing hospitality and serving, well they might look good, they might look commendable, but the vital ingredient of loving one another is required, otherwise they count for nothing. So Peter stressed the priority of loving one another. But then we see the persistency of loving one another because he goes on and says keep loving one another now the Greek word that's been translated as keep in the ESV um, in, in other versions it's sometimes maintain or or hold so the idea is to continue to one, to love one another or to persist in loving one another so in saying that he takes it as a given that there is love for one another amongst believers, but he's also recognising that such love has to be worked at. Sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ let us down. Sometimes they disappoint us. But you see, we're to persist in loving them. You You don't need to persist in in something that's easy, do you? Um, I don't have to persist in eating a cream cake. <laughs> I, I find it all too easy to, to, eat, to keep on eating it. There's no effort involved. I don't need to persist in, in doing something that, that, that's easy and something that I enjoy. I find it all too easy to eat too much of it. Well, loving one another isn't always easy, but we are to persist in it. And of course, we also need to remember that we might not always be easy for our brothers and sisters to love either. So once again, that one another thing isn't there. Well, I might find you difficult sometimes, but you find me difficult sometimes as well. So we share the bad bits as well as the good bits, don't we? You know, it's reciprocal. It works. It works both ways. So we need to persist. Uh, in loving one another. Sometimes the danger is that because love is hard, we'll simply grow tired. We'll simply uh, grow tired of loving one another. As Jesus said in Matthew 24 verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus was speaking there of the last days in, in which we're living. Thinking about that last time, weren't we? We are in, in the last days. And in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. We need to guard against it. In the context of, of growing lawlessness, where, where selfishness, 
and greed dominate it, uh, then loving one another becomes very challenging. You know, the world around us, they're not loving one another. The prevailing culture doesn't love one another. So it's hard for us to be different. But we're called to be different. And that's the challenge, isn't it? We must make sure that our, our love for one another doesn't grow cold. Hence, we need to persist in loving one another. And then we see the passion of loving one another. Because Peter speaks of loving one another earnestly. Now that doesn't just mean uh, grit your teeth and persist in loving one another. Um, We're to do so earnestly. It's something that's already been mentioned in one Peter. In chapter 1 verses 22-23 he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the, the idea of loving one another earnestly, as, as the ESV puts it, that perhaps sounds a bit a bit serious, a bit sombre, doesn't it? You know, if someone's earnest, oh, they're very... You know what I mean, I can't think of the word, but very serious. Um, that's not quite the idea... Uh, that's being expressed here. The NIV puts it as love one another deeply. Um, I don't think that quite captures the sense either. I think a better translation would actually be fervently. Uh, yes, it's to be love that's, that, that, that's serious. Yes, it's to be profound. But it's also to be strongly felt. It's to be passionate. Um, we're to love one another as Jesus loves us. I, I don't think Jesus was just quite earnest in loving us. Um, his love for us was certainly deep, but there's that that fire, that, that passion about it as well. So, you know, in, in our translations, we've got um, the, the word deeply or fervently separated from keep or maintain. So that they seem to be two different ideas. But in the Greek text, that they're actually together to give a phrase that you could be translated as keep deeply or maintain fervently. So the root idea of the phrase is really to be, it's to be stretched or, or intention. So, so the idea is to, to not slack off on loving one another. Nowadays, you know, we've all got battery-operated clocks and watches and, and so on, haven't we? But back in the good old days of <laughs> clockwork, uh, you had to keep the clock wound up to maintain, to maintain the tension of, of the spring. Because when the tension declined, well, the clock would slow down and eventually stop. Perhaps some of you younger ones don't have these memories, but I'm sure most of us can remember, you know, that the nightly ritual of going round the house and winding up the clocks before bedtime. Um, it's a thing of the past now, isn't it? But you, you had to do it, because if you didn't, you'd wake up in the morning and not have a clue what time was. All the clocks would have stopped. So, you know, be, be thankful for batteries. But the tension had to be maintained 
And likewise, we need to keep our love, if you like, wound up to make sure it doesn't stop. We must be in earnest or passionate in being determined to persist in loving one another. Without that, we'll be like the Ephesian believers who Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 verse 4 when he said, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Didn't keep it wound up. Let's let the tension uh, ebb away. But then fourthly, we see uh, the productivity of loving one another. Because Peter goes on to say, since, or it could be because. So he's giving a reason for loving one another. Um, what's that reason? Well, Peter says it's since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does he mean to cover sins in this context? Um, certainly in the Old Testament, to cover sin spoke of an atonement being made for sin. But certainly to, uh, to say that loving one another somehow makes an atonement either for our own sin or for other people's sin would be quite contrary to New Testament teaching, wouldn't it? You, know, you only need to remind ourselves of some of the things that Peter's already said uh, throughout the letter to see that it can't be that loving one another could ever atone for sin. Uh, back in chapter 1, 18 to 19, he said, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile way of, uh, from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or in chapter 2, 24, he said, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore him... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Chapter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So it's clear, isn't it, that atonement is only made by the shed blood of Christ uh, as he offered himself uh, as that perfect sacrifice for sin uh, by suffering and dying on the cross well if atonement for sin is not what Peter had in mind when he spoke of uh, when he spoke of uh, a sin, uh, love, love covering a multitude of sins um, was he speaking of a cover up when he said that love covers a multitude of sins, was he suggesting that love is to ignore sin or deny sin, sweep it under the carpet? It hardly seems likely, does it? You know, covering things up invariably only makes them worse, doesn't it? You, know, you think of the various child abuse scandals that have come to light um, with far too greater regularity of, of late you know they, they, they were ignored uh, they were denied and covering them up it's probably true to say that the cover up has caused almost as much harm as the original fences did um, covering things over doesn't do anybody any good and the New Testament certainly never encourages us to to ignore or deny sin, does it? Quite the opposite is true. 1 John 1, 
8 to verse, verses 8 to 10. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's not talking about covering over sin, turning a blind eye, pretending it hasn't happened. Peter's meaning becomes clear once you recognise that in saying love covers a multitude of sins, he was actually quoting from Proverbs, Proverbs 10 verse 12, uh, which says, hatred, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. And you see that what the proverb is doing there it is contrasting two opposites. It is contrasting hatred and love. And because they are opposites, what they each produce must also be opposites. So covers all offences must be the opposite of stirs up strife. So therefore, when Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins, he means that if we're loving one another, then we'll patiently forbear the wrongs that others do us so that strife is avoided rather than being stirred up. And you notice this suggests that our brothers and sisters in Christ will sometimes sin against us. That's being realistic. But if they do sin against us, if we keep loving one another, we'll cover those sins by not retaliating in kind, by not seeking revenge. Uh, retaliating would just, well, that would just escalate the evil, wouldn't it? That would just stir up more strife. It would ramp up ill-feeling and destroy brotherly love. But not retaliating short-circuits all that and avoids such a sinful behaviour from being duplicated and escalating so that it spirals out of control. Could well be that Peter was recalling the question that he himself once asked Jesus in Matthew 18:21. We read, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Well, how did Jesus reply to that? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, obviously, we're not to take that as a, a literal figure. You know, if, if somebody's wronged you 77 times, you're not to say, I'm going to get you next time. You know, you've had your lot. No, the, the point is, we go on forgiving. We, we go on uh, forgiving as long as it takes. How are we able to do that? Well, surely it's because the Lord has forgiven us. If, if we enjoy his forgiveness, how can we not forgive others who is also forgiven? You know, we're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they've received the same forgiveness from him as we have. Well, if he's forgiven them, how can we not? So it should be obvious, shouldn't it? But of course, our, our sinful nature is such that we don't find it easy, even though it is obvious. But he's forgiven our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if he's forgiven them, how can we possibly not forgive them as well? So that's loving one another. But moving on, we see that the next exhortation was to show 
hospitality to one another. Don't look too panicky. That was by far the longest point. (laughs) So we see there in verse 9, show hospitality to one another. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that word hospitality. Uh, Nowadays, we have a very well-established and lucrative hospitality industry, don't we? Hospitality is big business. It's a major contributor to the economy. But the the hospitality that Peter has in mind here certainly uh, isn't a a service that's to be brought and sold as a a revenue generator. Rather, he's thinking of a a Christ-honouring sacrifice. When we hear the, uh, the word hospitality, we might think in terms of you know, having a few friends round for a meal or having the family come to stay with you or something like that. That's, that's hospitality, isn't it? And they're good things to do. Um, hopefully, by and large, they're pleasant, enjoyable experiences, and maybe even not too difficult. But Peter uh, wasn't speaking of hospitality in general. You remember he's speaking of showing hospitality to one another. It's showing hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ um, and receiving hospitality from our brothers and sisters in Christ. So once you, you, you recognise that, you might think, oh, well, in that case, it must mean having friends from church round for a meal. Um, and I'm sure that sort of thing is included in this idea of, of showing hospitality to one another. But, but in New Testament times, it would often have meant allowing your home to be used by the church as a meeting place. So plenty of examples of that. Uh, we read in Romans 16.23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So this guy, Gaius, well, he hosted the whole church. That, that was... Major hospitality, wasn't it? I don't know how big the church was. Maybe maybe it wasn't. But the whole church uh, met at Gaius' house. He offered hospitality to the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.19 The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So this, this you know, wasn't sort of a one-off. It's all round at their house this week. It, it was regular. That was the church's regular meeting place. So that hospitality was a big commitment. Uh, the church met at the house of Aquila and Prisca. Colossians 4.15 Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So such hospitality is much more costly and and demanding than hosting a dinner party for a few friends. It's a form of sacrificial giving. But then you see, when you recognise the meaning of the Greek word that's been translated as hospitality, you realise that the concept is even broader and more demanding than simply entertaining friends from church or, or providing a place for the church to meet. The Greek word is philozenos, and that's a composite of, of philos, which means friendly, and zenos, which means foreigner. 
or, or stranger. Um, you'd all have heard the word xenophobic. Well, this is the opposite of xenophobic. It's, it's xenophilic. It's, it's not fearing strangers or being against strangers. It's loving them, welcoming them. So, as, as believers in Christ, in terms of hospitality, we are to be not xenophobes, but xenophiles. We are to welcome, welcome strangers. Now remember, we've, um, you know, we've already recognised that this is hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're talking about fellow believers who are strangers to us. It's not just the, the brothers and sisters that we know. This, this is talking about showing hospitality and welcoming believers who are strangers. Um, you know, we see that sense quite clearly in Hebrews 13, 1-2, where it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So it's talking about brotherly love continuing. Not don't neglect to show hospitality to one another. But don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. But what sort of strangers are we to show hospitality to? Well remember Peter's talking about hospitality to one another. So he's thinking of other believers. And the point is that hospitality to one another is not to be limited to those within our particular fellowship or those who are particularly known to us. It's also to be extended to fellow believers who are not known to us. Now, in New Testament times, I guess there are probably two scenarios uh, in which opportunities to show hospitality to strangers could arise. Um, Firstly, it would be in terms of providing board and lodging for evangelists and, and other Christian workers on their travels. Um, remember when Jesus sent out the twelve to proclaim the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven was at hand uh, in Matthew ten eleven to thirteen. He said, "And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it." And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Clearly, Jesus expected that they would receive hospitality from strangers. Wherever they went, he expected them to receive hospitality. So that's one scenario where you have evangelists or Christian workers travelling and needing hospitality. Second scenario would perhaps be hinted at in Romans 12. 12 to 13 where we read rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality so this is hospitality in the context of fellow believers who are in tribulation now that could be when fleeing from persecution uh, or, or from famine so those are two situations in which, in New Testament times, uh, hospitality could be shown to, to believers who are strangers. Peter goes on to say that we're to do so without grumbling. You know, just as we're to be 
cheerful givers when making financial contributions towards the well-being of our brothers and sisters in need, we're also to be cheerful givers of hospitality. Now, it's not easy to work out uh, exactly how such giving of hospitality is to be applied in our present context. You know, the the, the two examples I gave of uh, New Testament situations where such hospitality um, would be appreciated and applicable, well, they're not quite so easy for us to see in in our country in in this day and age, are they? Um, So we perhaps need to give some thought to to how, how to apply that in our situation. But it's very clear that we're not not to just be willing to give hospitality that's comfortable and convivial. You know, we're to be prepared to provide hospitality that's costly and demanding wherever the opportunity arises. I'll let you think about any any ways in which you think that can be be applied uh, in our day and age. Then, thirdly and finally and, and briefly, uh, serve one another. Peter continues in verse 10 by saying, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So he's just spoken about showing hospitality to one another. And I suppose really that is a specific form of service, isn't it? But we're to be servants to one another in in other ways. Uh, In this world... I suppose it's true to say that servanthood is looked down upon, isn't it? Uh, Servants are considered to be menial, lowly, unimportant. That's the world's view. But we're not to view things as the world does. In Christ, we've been radically and fundamentally changed so that our thinking has been turned upside down and brought into line with his thinking. And we see something of his thinking on, on servants um, in Luke 22, 24 to 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You you see the point. To the world, the one who is served is greater than the one who serves. But to Jesus, the opposite is true. That's not simply what he thought and taught, it's what he did. Jesus, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, came as the one who serves. So no wonder his people are to serve one another. If he is our Lord, then we'll do what he did. We'll be like him. So we are to be servants of one another. Paul emphasises that in Galatians 5.13, where he said, For you were called to freedom, brothers. That sounds great, doesn't it? Do what you want. 
only there's a, bar, there's a proviso only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another there you've got it again so I'm going to stop there um, but Peter does say more um, continuing in verse 10 and verse 11 um, really about how we're equipped to serve one another so that's what we're going to consider together next time